Welcome to In Reality, the podcast about truth, disinformation, and the media. I'm Eric Scherenberg, a longtime journalist and media executive, now the founder of the Alliance for Trust in Media. There are two ways to fight misinformation. One is to debunk falsehoods after they've surfaced. The other is to help create media-literate news audiences who can recognize false claims before they take root. Debunking, necessary though it is, inevitably hands the initiative to manipulators and propagandists. Media literacy, on the other hand, helps news consumers debunk their own news feed. It simply scales better. Today's guest has spent the past decade and a half engaged in the media literacy cause. A former educator, Peter Adams, is the research director of the News Literacy Project, a 15-year-old nonprofit that trains middle school and high school teachers to impart the media literacy and critical thinking skills their students need to navigate today's incredibly challenging information ecosystem. Peter and I discuss the penetration of news literacy training in school systems, how to deal with bias in news sources, the impact of collapsing media business models on the news environment, and the responsibility of news consumers to curate their own media diet. And now here's Peter Adams. Peter, welcome to In Reality. It's great to be with you, Eric. It is great to have you. Um, I have been following the News Literacy Project for a couple of years, and uh, I'm I'm very familiar with it, and and so are any experts or people who are interested in the uh, in the work you do, but not everybody knows about it. So tell us a little bit about the origin story of the News Literacy Project and what it does. Sure. Uh, so the News Literacy Project is an education nonprofit organization that works with uh, the public and especially with educators to help people uh, navigate today's information environment. So to dis- distinguish fact from fiction, to understand what they can trust, what credible information looks like uh, and why it matters in their lives. Um, NLP was founded by a career uh, investigative journalist named Alan C. Miller, uh, who spent 30 years at the Los Angeles Times, nearly, um, mostly in the Washington Bureau, and following a a visit with his daughter's middle school, realized that uh, that generation really didn't have an appreciation for what distinguished quality journalism from everything else they were seeing, Um, kind of terrified him and alarmed him. Uh, as someone who who held accuracy and fairness and and all the ideals of of quality journalism uh, so sacred, and so he uh, took a buyout from from the Times and and with some initial seed funding from the Knight Foundation, uh, who is still a funder of NLP, uh, developed a, a curriculum um, for news literacy. So one of the very first uh, news literacy curriculum. Uh, out there. Um, back in 2007-8, he developed this curriculum and, and launched NLP, and we've kind of been off and running ever since. You are NLP's research director. What, is, what does that mean? What do you do? So the team I head is actually the, the research and design team. My team develops all of our uh, student and teacher-facing content and our public-facing content. So we have uh, a team that that uh, folks on my team who who develop lesson plans for our website resource library. My team populates our Checkology virtual classroom, which is probably our 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 core resource for educators. It's a virtual learning environment, an e learning environment. 
Um, we produce a weekly email newsletter for educators called The Sift that helps them sort of keep up with trends in journalism and misinformation and debunking and social media platform moderation. Um, and then we have a version of that newsletter called Get Smart About News for non-educators. Uh, that comes out of my team. My team runs a website called RumorGuard uh, that takes uh, recent examples of misinformation and not only kind of summarizes why they're false and explains that, but then unpacks that and helps them understand, you know, how that example fits into misinformation patterns and tropes that they can learn to recognize at a more general level. Um, and then my team also does our teacher professional development and webinars and public events conversations with uh, with folks. So uh, we get up to a lot and I, I get the honor of heading that very busy team. That sounds great. Uh, I want to talk about rumor guard in, in a second. So let's let's come back to that in particular, uh, the rumors that are uh, the focus of your attention right now. But let's just to place NLP in the education environment, how much penetration does your curriculum have in school systems? Um, what are the success stories that uh, that sort of measure your success? Uh, we have um, you know thousands of educators across the U.S. Uh, and also uh, around the world who have uh, uh, created accounts on Checkology and, and use it with uh, tens of thousands of students uh, a year. Um, since we launched Checkology in early 2016, we launched it in in spring of 2016. I'd have to pull you the cumulative numbers. I don't want to cite you a faulty number. I didn't. I didn't pull those up for the interview, but pretty dramatic, dramatic impact with students in terms of reach. Um, we also do a, a pre and post uh, assessment for Checkology, so teachers who who opt into that instrument, uh, their their students take a, a pre assessment survey before they begin, uh, and then they take uh, those questions again when they finish a corresponding lesson, so we can measure some some growth and impact. Uh, my team also is, you know, very committed to kind of iterative design. So if we see, you know, something that's not performing as well as other lessons, we take another look at that lesson. We take a look at the question and how we're asking it um, and, and try to try to make those changes and fixes so we can continue to, to make bigger improvements uh, year over year. Okay. Uh, at the Alliance for Trust, we think a lot about news literacy and what it means. And to us, it means understanding who the players are in the current information ecosystem, and then using that knowledge to distinguish between trustworthy sources of news and untrustworthy sources. That's our sort of nickel definition. What, what else goes into it from your point of view? So I think that's a lot. I mean, there's a lot there to unpack, right? So uh, I think something that, that Alan has sort of baked into NLP's um, uh, organizational DNA from the beginning is this conviction that uh, the standards of quality journalism, the, 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 the standards and practices that newsrooms, the quality newsrooms uh, aspire to take seriously um, also can function uh, on the consumer side as a kind of yardstick to, to measure credibility, right? So if we help people understand, you know, what uh, the aspiration to to be fair looks like and to really reflect on that and think about it in a nuanced way to help them understand even conventions of style. Um, a lot of people misunderstand why a given news organization will or won't use a specific term to describe something, uh, often out of just a very granular concern for accuracy. Um, help them understand uh, the ideals of, of transparency and the importance of that, of accountability, uh, of you know correcting the record. 
um, helping them understand, you know, how news organizations make decisions around what to cover and how to gauge news values um, and how to, you know, how to source stories, who, who they talk to uh, and why and what, you know, what a responsible news organization looks like in terms of, you know, in terms of how those things show up in the end product. Uh, so there is a lot there. I think also helping folks understand the role that a free press plays uh, in a robust democracy and, and why that matters. Um, also really helping them understand the stakes of misinformation. This has been, you know, an increasingly big role uh, of our work and an increasingly big part of our work. Um, just helping them understand that, you know, falsehoods, even if they don't fall for them, uh, do have a downstream effect. So, you know, their neighbors, other people in their community, other people in their networks may believe those. So, you, you know, you may, you, you may be uh, someone who, who feels that they don't fall for falsehoods online. And even if that's true, uh, they can still affect you, right? Because they, other people do believe them. They vote in your community, they vote in your state elections and so on. Um, and so it's everybody's, it's everybody's problem and it's, it's everybody's issue. Um, and just really sort of helping, helping with that. Um, and then we like to help people also have kind of productive conversations about these things, non-combative conversations, and help sort of ameliorate some of the, some of the polarization that's, that's going on. Okay. All right. Good. Well, that, that is comprehensive. Given Alan's background as an investigative journalist for, uh, you know, some mainstream publications, it's easy. And, and of course, I, too, have a background in uh, you know, established institutional journalism. It is tempting to have news literacy boil down to trusting mainstream established media and then kind of to be mistrustful of everyone else. Uh. Um, I, you know, I, it is an easy thing for me to default to, but for uh, younger people who prefer to get their news from TikTok, say, it can't be the solution simply to say, stick to the Washington Post and the New York Times and Reuters and shut out everything else. The, the information environment is more complex than that. How do you evaluate the non-traditional sources of news? Yeah. So I think, I think again, those, those same aspirations. So for us, it's less about, uh, and we get asked this question all the time, you know, what, what do you have a list of credible sources that we can give to students? And we say, no, we want, we want students to make those determinations themselves. But we do, what we will give you is that, you know, the, the characteristics of credible information. So, you know, nobody nobody disputes that that uh, credible organizations and credible information should be transparent, transparent, you know, at the level of an individual report. You know, where you're getting your information should be clearly attributed and sourced, um, but also transparent at the organizational level. Um, uh, nobody thinks that credible information shouldn't be accountable, that, that organizations that purport to produce credible information shouldn't correct the record, shouldn't own errors, uh, shouldn't respond to their audience when they say on, say, social media that a headline is, is uh, unfair or misleading. Um, there should you know, be a demonstrated uh, concern for, for those values. Uh, no one thinks it shouldn't be accurate, certainly. No one thinks it shouldn't you know, be fair. So if we can really help students understand what those ideals look like, then they can, again, they can recognize them in practice. Um, I think, you know, that it, it, it is true that, that uh, institutional news media um, have the, the, the sort of longest demonstrated history of, of having a concern for those ideals. It doesn't mean that they perfectly live up to them. Uh, but, you know, I think they certainly do 
um, more so than a lot of uh, alternative outlets or outlets that that don't necessarily have those concerns that that have a sort of open partisan orientation. And we want to help students understand that it doesn't mean that uh, opinionated commentary doesn't have a place um, in your information diet. Doesn't mean that. John Oliver's entertaining commentary doesn't have a place in young people's information diet. A lot of them think that he does, you know, better quote unquote reporting uh, than news organizations. And, you know, we kind of always remind folks that he actually bases all of his stuff on standards based news reporting, but he's adding a lot of commentary that's entertaining and interesting and provocative. Um, and that has a place, but we want students to know what they're looking at when they see it, right? So one of our foundational lessons that we call InfoZones helps students differentiate between news and opinion and advertising and entertainment uh, and raw information. You know, just a raw security cam video that they might come across on TikTok isn't news. It's raw information. You're, you're getting this out of context. It has a role. It has a place. But you should also remember that there's a lot missing. Right. And so we're actually really, really careful with what students consider news to be. Um, and we, we sort of try to define that very clearly for them and, and help them think for themselves about, you know, what to trust. I want to double click uh, specifically on something you mentioned a few minutes ago about how certain organizations may use terms to describe various terms to describe goings on in the, in the news and others may choose not to. And they're, you know, an example for many years was Reuters reluctance to identify Islamic violence as being acts of terrorism. And, uh, you know, there are other examples around um, how to treat falsehoods that are, are originate in um, political discourse. Uh, can you give me an example of uh, where that might be happening today and where NLP has helped explain that to uh, its audience? Sure. Uh, so we talk a lot with educators about uh, bias, you know, they, they, that is the kind of number one topic, not just among educators, but I think the broader public, uh, when it comes to thinking and talking about journalism. And so we, we really try to add a lot of nuance to that conversation, right. To think about, you know, what counts as bias and, and who decides everybody's fond of saying this, this news organization leans right, or this is skewed left. But, but what does that really mean in practice? What is the center and who decides? Is the center static and fixed or does it float with the national conversation over the course of years? I think are all productive things to think about. A, a slice of that is our style decisions, right? So as you mentioned, you know, the, the, the conversations in newsrooms about when and how to use words like terrorism, uh, when and how to describe something a politician has said as a lie, right? A lie is, a, is something that's false that the person knew was false when they said it. Uh, and so there is a concern, I think, I and mean, that is a particularly interesting conversation that has been uh, kind of resurfaced in recent years um, because, you, you, you know, some newsrooms have sort of pointed out to use that word. Uh, we have to know that the person knowingly said something false and didn't just mistakenly say something false. Even if we think it's almost certainly the case, uh, is that good enough, you know, to call something a lie? And does it add anything to the coverage, right? Or can the public sort of decide for themselves? Of course, there are segments of the public, uh, especially, you know, people who, who have strong partisan feelings that will take to social media and condemn a news outlet for not using it. But I think that, you know, the, what counts and what we try to sort of bring people's attention to is the fact that those conversations are happening in the first place. You may not agree 
with where the New York Times or Reuters or any other outlet comes down on what to call a given act. But the fact that they've that they have had those conversations that they, you know, sometimes publish editors notes or columns to explain them. Uh, the fact that, you know, that, that those kind of conversations and considerations are happening is, is the, the sign of credibility in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, that there is a, an attempt to use the word thoughtfully and accurately. And I think that's reflected in, you know, AP style guidance, right? So if you look at the AT, AP style book, you can see these very clear explanations. And, you know, when they update style, it is a very clear um, explanation as to why, right? And, and incredibly thoughtful. And I think if more people sort of engage with that or just sort of dabbled it, followed the AP style guidance uh, accounts on on Twitter um, uh, and social media, that uh, that they would that they would benefit from that. You're referring to the style guides put out by the Associated Press. Yes. You mentioned earlier that um, you know traditional uh, mainstream media, high integrity media, um, is not perfect. That they are human institutions. But lately, they've been particularly challenged. Uh, the business models have changed, uh, not for the better. And so some once proud institutions, including Alan Miller's own LA Times, recently had layoffs. Texas Tribune, Baltimore Sun just sold for a song. Local news is in free fall. This affects the ability of these institutions to cover the news. Uh, it, cover, it affects their news mix between opinion and straight reporting. How do you uh, deal with that and in instructing the audience for the News Literacy Project to uh, evaluate the news that, they, that comes across their uh, news feed? Sorry, how do we teach them to, to yeah, sort I, of take to, to what extent? Yeah, to what extent does understanding the challenges that the information environment or the traditional mainstream media are facing now affect yeah. the quality of news? Sure. I, yeah, I think, I mean, there's a lot there, right? So you, we, we, we often talk to educators more, more, th more than students directly, really try to help educators understand the, the vicissitudes of the attention economy, right? And just how competitive it is, how uh, advertising revenue has plummeted for all sorts of reasons. Ad tech, uh, you know, huge ad tech companies are, are siphoning up, you know, enormous amounts of revenue that, much of which used to go to, to larger media organizations. Mm -hmm. uh, the rates for advertising have dropped and news organizations have to constantly sort of navigate, you know, a thoughtful, accurate headline with a headline that's going to get attention amid everything else that's in front of people. Right. And so if you stray too far toward uh, sensationalism, then you're sort of denigrating your credibility and your brand. Uh, you certainly don't want to stray into sort of clickbait territory, although we've seen organizations do that, right? Sports Illustrated has done that. Newsweek has done that. You know, once great publications that have sort of sullied their, their reputations by, by doing that. Others, you know, if they, they sort of maintain their more traditional approach, uh, may not get the, the traffic that they need and may not get subscribers. I think the same is true with the blend of, you know, the mix of opinion content and, and straight news. Certainly opinion sells, right? And, and people online love having their biases reflected back to them. I think in many ways, they love being outraged. And so outrage mongers and, and people who are willing to just reflect people's worldviews back to them, pundits, online opinion influencers, partisan influencers, uh, certainly uh, have a, you know, develop a large following 
doing that work. And it's, it's tough for news organizations to, to sort of swim in those waters uh, successfully and, and maintain their ideals. Um, so we try to help students, you know, and, and, and educators think about those issues very clearly, right? That n- news organizations do need revenue to operate. Um, and there are various models to, to, try to, to try to provide that revenue, all of which tend to come with some potential conflicts of interest that then require policies to, to mitigate or minimize. Uh, and that, you know, just to, to think, just be thoughtful about that, right? And to, to recognize those, those realities and also recognize that, you know, that a lot of local news organizations especially are, are shuddering, that we're losing local news media and the, the, the long-term effect on democracy could be uh, disastrous. Very true. Uh, in addition to the challenges of the changing business models for for mainstream media, you could argue, and, and many have, that those newsrooms also have their political biases. You probably read Peter Bennett's uh, account of his ouster from the New York Times for having approved a, a conservative senator's op-ed uh, on the opinion pages. I'm right now reading Marty Barron's book about the clashes that he had with somewhat dogmatic, progressive uh, forces in his own newsroom. Uh, right. That how do you allow for biases in the um, and what do you t- what do you tell your audience about uh, that kind of political bias in the in the news feed that they may that may be coming from traditional news sources? Sure. So I think bias is 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 a concept that that people both oversimplify, uh, but also sometimes complicate unnecessarily in mm-hmm. in different ways right so i think you know people tend to think that that bias in a newsroom is a a systematic kind of top-down uh thing that every news organization has some sort of systematic secret agenda or tactical reason behind every decision they make behind every story they do that senior level editors you know go to go to individual reporters and tell them to spin this this way or do this that way. And that's just not, not at all how, how it happens, right? So I think the public thinks that, that bias is, is both overt and intentional. Um, and I think for the most part, uh, at, at legitimate news organizations, bias and coverage is much more incidental, um, you know, a byproduct of, of uh, oversights and um, things people don't, don't realize uh, are, are not in the reporting or are in the reporting. And are also highly debatable, right? So um, people point often to the same coverage. You can see it now in coverage of the Israel-Hamas war. Uh, people who have strong feelings about uh, those events see a very strong and very clear bias in the coverage against, you know, where their their sympathies and their loyalties lie. Uh, and I think that's true across the political spectrum as well. Right, people on the left are infuriated by mainstream coverage and think that it's biased against their policies and their positions and misrepresents the politicians that they favor. And people on the right feel the same way. Um, and I think we could all, you know, be better served if we had a, a more nuanced, more thoughtful approach to that. Uh, so what we do uh, is try to um, help educators teach students to, to look at different types of bias first. So you have an initial perception of bias, recognize that you yourself are, are also biased. You're bringing your biases to the coverage. And, you know, so give yourself a gut check and then ask yourself, you know, what type of bias do I think I'm seeing? 
allegations of partisan bias kind of dominate the conversations, but there's also the potential for demographic bias. There's the potential for something we call neutrality bias, which is, you know, being neutral when the facts are clear. So kind of false balance or both sidesism. Uh, there's the potential for corporate bias. There's a bias toward big stories or big scoops and a news organization might move too fast. And once you figure out the type, then think about how is it actually showing up in coverage? Is it a matter of tone? Is it the way it's framed? Is it how it's sourced? And so I think if we think in terms of those types and forms and really kind of vet our perceptions initially, we can come out on the other side with, with uh, you know, feedback for news organizations that's much more substantive uh, and actionable. So if, if you've done the legwork, if you take an instance of what you believe to be bias, reflect on it, control for your own biases, think about you know, the type of bias you think you're seeing and the form it's taking and still feel that there's something there, uh, then you have something substantive and specific to say that's much more likely to, to get the attention of, of the news organization that published the piece. Um, and so that's how we that's how we tend to approach that. Okay, well, thank you. That's that's very helpful. Um, I, I want to press a little bit further on um, on partisan bias in in media. Part of the news literacy project's approach uh, in dealing with educators, for example, is to be strictly nonpartisan. This is uh, definitely part of your uh, you know your business model, if you will, and yet. It is also seems clear to me anyway that there is, and the, there's a lot of research behind this that suggests that there is a kind of asymmetry in disinformation. That um, believing, for example, that there was a conspiracy to steal the 2020 presidential election, uh, despite evidence to the contrary, is a litmus test for membership in many conservative circles. And um, the cognitive habits that you encourage among your audience would be skeptical of other conservative talking points like vaccine hesitancy or QAnon or, uh, you know, in addition to stop the steal. Um, how do you convince school administrators that you at the News Literacy Project are not basically doing advanced work for progressive leanings? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this I think is is something that a lot of educators have to grapple with uh, in in these politically polarized times. You know, parents are really um, looking carefully at what students are learning in the classroom, and and often with with a determination to find partisanship and partisan bias, uh, which has made it really rough. I think on on classroom teachers all over the country. You know, we again, it, Alan, uh, as a journalist, you know, was was uh, deeply committed to to nonpartisanship in his work and in his reporting, kind of following the facts where they lead and being as you know as impartial as possible, and brought those values to NLP um, early on. But when we get that question from districts and from educators, you know, we encourage them to to look at our materials first and foremost, and and you know, help us understand where where if anywhere they feel that we've missed the mark. Um, that they, you know, if they feel like there is a, a lesson, uh, or a resource or an infographic or something that, you know, we've published or produced that has some side of some sort of partisan bias, you know, we are happy and eager to take a look at that, right? We want to be accountable for our own work. Um, people can also look at our board, um, which has a representation from across the political spectrum. Uh, from our funders, uh, and we're happy to have those those kinds of conversations. We also have a you know a, a pretty strict firewall between our funders and our content, so we won't 
you know, take money to, to spin a lesson one way or the other. We don't invite funders to the table to design our lessons. Uh, we have projects that we want to build and we, we look for funding, you know, for those things. Um, and so that's, you know, that's another sort of value that I think Alan instilled early on, right, is the, the independence and the importance of, of our independence and our judgment. Uh, we've, we've walked away from significant funding in the past uh, from funders who wanted to use NLP to do reputation repair, wanted to use NLP to produce something that, that uh, you know, we, we just weren't willing to do. Uh, and so we often have to have those conversations now, I think, as we reach out to, to schools and districts and help them understand who we are and, and what we do. Yes, yes. It must be much more difficult now than it was in the early days of, of NLP because schools have become such a front line in the culture wars here. I'd like to shift to the sort of demand side of uh, falsehood and disinformation, if you will. Um, you mentioned earlier, and I think it's an extremely important point in today's information environment, to understand that curating a healthy news diet, to use your, use your phrase, is your responsibility as a news consumer now, that you're no longer sufficient to be a passive uh, consumer of you know, three broadcast networks and a local newspaper. Part of that responsibility is understanding your own biases and how you can be manipulated however much you think you can't be. How do you advise uh, news consumers to understand how to minimize their own biases and their own susceptibility to uh, attractive falsehoods? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question. I think I think there's a lot there, right? I think there's a piece of the public being aware of how the tools they most often use work and their potential to echo chamber them, uh, to, to put them in a kind of filter bubble. Um, if you like and engage with specific content on TikTok or on Facebook or on Twitter, uh, you are or X rather, you're likely to to get more of that, right? And so to really understand how that works, I think is important. And to step outside of that intentionally is also important. So I think, you know, that, that uh, people should build uh, a social media feed that has some, some thoughtful, informed voices with whom they disagree uh, in it. Uh, and then you will, you know, you will see those voices. Uh, and, and to grapple with that with, with honesty and, and, you know, with, with reflection. So I think it's altogether too easy for people today to say that, uh, oh, you know, the, the Republican Party this or the Democrats that uh, and just write off people whole cloth and their views. Um, but to really understand, you know, where it's coming from, even things where where people's beliefs and attitudes depart from the facts. So you mentioned like, you know, anti-vaccination sentiment, right? Some of that sentiment, I think, is due to a concern over government overreach and regulations, governments requiring uh, vaccines, uh, governments working with social media companies uh, to, to establish content moderation policies. And I think those kinds of concerns are legitimate, right? Um, what's not legitimate, you know, is, is our, our false assertions about the safety of vaccines um, that I think, you know, we, we have to push back against, right? Uh, and, and, and I should add, you know, NLP does not include climate change denial uh, as sort of something we need to sort of give equal time to as part of our nonpartisan stance. Part of our nonpartisan stance and part of our values as an organization uh, 
is affirming fact-based information. And that includes the fact that, you know, that climate change is real, that it's largely driven by human activity, that vaccines are safe, and that the 2020 election uh, was not stolen. Uh, and so we're, we're not afraid to say that. Uh, we don't think that's actually a partisan statement. Uh, shouldn't be considered a partisan statement. It should be just a matter of consensus. Uh, and it's important for us to, to sort of get back to the place where we can uh, have those assumptions and then talk about policy and then talk about uh, other things. One of the problems in having a, a healthy news diet, a well-rounded news diet, is not just recognizing falsehoods when they cross your radar screen, but also seeing things that are just not covered in your, you know, in your filter bubble, in your world. And I think about, uh, for example, a, a, a recent story in the Times about how few Republicans are aware of Trump's legal battles, um, which are sort of the subject of relentless coverage in mainstream publications like the Times and the and the Washington Post. And conversely, I wonder um, if uh, progressives are aware of some the growing concern about transgender practices for. Um, places like Tavistock in London. Um, I, I, you know, I, I wonder about how you handle that. If you, it, it's one thing to verify news that crosses your, uh, your newsfeed. It's, it's another thing to discover news that you're not even hearing about. Yes. Uh, so yeah, again, there's a lot there, right? I think, I think first that goes back to, to sort of building a, a very media diet, right? And being deliberate about your news consumption. I think we lose a lot when we turn our news consumption over to algorithms entirely that say, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer in following credible sources of information on social media. When I see a public opinion poll that says uh, that, you know, a high percentage of Americans get news on social media, I don't think that's automatically worrisome. Uh, I get a lot of news on social media, but uh, are you deliberate about it? Um, and do you also get news from other places? Do you deliberately read a Sunday paper? Do you look at an evening newscast? Do you listen to a broadcast on a regular basis? Do you have news apps on your phone that you open to get news? Or do you just let news find you? I think there are a lot of pitfalls when you just let news find you because algorithms are not optimized for credibility and for, you know, civic discourse. They're out, they're optimized for engagement and ads. And so, you know, they can be powerful tools to stay informed, but they can't be your only tool. Um, I think, too, there's a lot of rhetoric online about, you know, things that, quote unquote, the media refuses to cover or isn't covering enough. And then those people will tell you all about that thing in great detail. And my, and my question is always, how do you know so much about it if the media is not covering it? And they'll say, OK, well, some people are covering it. And if you sometimes, you know, if you just stop and search, there's actually often a lot of coverage. You just didn't happen to see it. You didn't happen to hear it. You know, it was on just before you got in the car or it was the, the article you didn't click on the thing that didn't make it into your feed. And so I think that's really important as well. But I, I, I would agree that, you know, people need to actively de-echo chamber themselves, right, again, and, and, and look for voices that, uh, that they tend to disagree with and to read a, a variety of, of coverage from a variety of sources. All right, Peter, you have teed up my next question, which you must get asked all the time, which is where do you get your news? Oh, gosh, I uh, get a, a number of sources. I read, you know, several uh, national papers, you know, uh, I also listen to my local NPR affiliate here in Chicago, uh, read the local papers here in Chicago. I also follow a lot of digital first, you know, news organizations uh, across the web and in individual reporters. 
uh, read a lot of tech news um, as well. So organizations that cover uh, issues in social media moderation. Uh, and then, you know, I'm a big, big believer in reading uh, fact checks from standards-based fact checking organizations. So I think if you can keep up with the falsehoods that are circulating online, you can begin to to recognize those those trends and tropes, uh, and sort of inoculate yourselves to the to the appeal of those when when they make their way across your feed, whether in overt forms like an overt falsehood, or even just just narratives that are floating that you can recognize that are related to a conspiracy theory uh, or you know a, a falsehood uh, that is sort of under underpinning that. Okay. Let's let's end with uh, giving the listeners an opportunity to f- learn more about NLP and um, its products like Checkology and RumorGuard. Uh, where where should they go, and um, a- and how are the products differentiated for different audiences? Sure. Uh, so the you know the the best place to go to start is our our homepage at newslit.org, uh, and that's kind of your roadmap to to everything else we have. Uh, educators who are interested in the News Literacy Project's resources uh, should definitely check out the Checkology Virtual Classroom. That lives at checkology.org. Uh, that is a free e-learning resource uh, with something like 18 lessons now about a variety of topics uh, and then a, a lot of practice sets and challenges that students can work through to master those concepts and apply those concepts to, to real-world examples of, of information that we've, that we've curated for them. Uh, those are our, our big public, uh, or sorry, our big educator resources for the broader public. Um, we have uh, Rumor Guard, which helps folks kind of stay abreast of misinformation, like I was just talking about. So we publish two or three pieces a week on rumorguard.org that explain not just what a, a prominent uh, falsehood that's that's a piece of viral misinformation uh, in recent days but also uh, kind of how to think about that and, and what that means, right? So the, the larger question of, of what you can learn from that uh, and learn to recognize so that you are not exploited or duped by that in the future, by that tactic, by that technique. Uh, or you can help your friends and family do that as well uh, with RumorGuard. You can sign up for email alerts from RumorGuard. You can even now sign up for text alerts uh, from RumorGuard.org that will, that will ping you when a significant rumor uh, is circulating and we have a new entry uh, as well. And then we do have those two email newsletters as well, the SIFT uh, for educators and Get Smart About News for the broader public, which uh, are absolutely uh, great sort of con- concise digests of uh, news literacy relevant stuff each week. Great. Peter Adams, thank you so much for being on In Reality, and thank you for the work you're doing at uh, News Literacy Project. Thanks so much, Eric. It was great. And thanks to you for listening all the way through. If you share our concern for truth and democracy, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen. It will help spread the message. And please don't hesitate to give me feedback at eric at ericschurenberg.com. I'd love to hear from you in truth and in reality.